Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Here's Dickow from the deep corner for three. Uh-oh, uh-oh. It's on now. Downtown Dan connects. Every morning when I'm working out, I'm listening to your podcast. Keep up the great work. I mean, I've seen Dan Dickow hit some big shots in the NCAA tournament. <laughs> I got to salute you, man. Like, I've been watching you since I was in high school trying to mimic all your moves. Welcome to today's episode of the ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dickow for SB Live Sports. Today's guest, someone I have a little bit of a past with, he probably doesn't enjoy being reminded of it. At some point, that story may get woven. I'll let him tell it if it, if it <laughs> presents itself. Uh, former coach turned terrific broadcaster with the ESPN Network's Fran Fraschilla. Coach, how is life? It sounds like you just made a move and you're excited for, for your new home base with the college basketball season coming up. Yeah, Dan, I, don't, I do not have a real job, man. I've been blessed. You know, 23 years as a college coach. I got out of coaching at 43, about to turn 44. I thought I was going back after a year or two off. You know, I, 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 I retired because of illness at New Mexico. They got sick of me. And, uh, but in, in all seriousness, uh, when I left New Mexico, I had many opportunities to go back to coaching and I decided I just like hanging out with my two sons at the time. They were nine and six. Now they're coaching and, uh, ESPN just took off. And honestly, 23 years of coaching, 19 in broadcasting. I don't work. I, I love what I do. I love the game. I will. I love it every single day of my life. It's not the most important part of my life, but it's certainly a big part. And uh, we live in Colorado Springs now. I live in uh, God's country like you do in Spokane. So uh, we're having a great time and I'm excited about the season. Yeah, I'm excited as well. Uh, schedules for guys like ourselves are getting pieced together as we speak. Media days are happening. Uh, yeah. When we release this podcast, it'll be probably uh, a ton of excitement across the country because uh, the season is just about there. When you yeah. look big picture right now, Yep. Who are the couple teams that you're really keeping an eye on that one you either know is going to be there or maybe you're really intrigued by? Well, there's a lot of them, obviously. Um, the thing that I'm intrigued by big picture is how many old veteran teams there are going to be in college basketball this year, Danny, because, um, you know, like it was Mark Few, it was Scott Drew, it was Chris Beard, it was a few others that really handled that transfer portal great the last decade. And with the, with the advent of the open, you know, eligibility right away, you can leave and not have to sit out. And the fact that COVID gave everybody that extra year, thanks to the NCAA, we got more veteran teams than ever. You know, when Duke and Kentucky were really good, and they still are, but when they were really kicking butt with the one and dones, um, the only way to beat those teams was to get old and stay old. You know, that's the new cliche, right? Uh, Coach Few's done that great. Scott Drew has done it great. But I think what we got in college basketball right now is like junior college basketball, like you're coaching year to year, you're putting a roster together year to year. So to answer your question in a long winded way, um, I, you know, the, the usual teams are going to be good, but there's just going to be so many older players in college hoops this year. I'm excited to see these teams. Yeah, I've heard that from a number of people I've had as a guest on my podcast and, and the mantra has become 
get old and stay old however you can do it whether you find hidden gems in the high school evaluation circuit or yeah. find transfers at an opportune time yeah do you miss the recruiting side of <laughs> and grind of being a college coach because i can imagine that's the most difficult part you know i loved recruiting but i didn't necessarily love the grind i'll have to tell you I used to say about college coaching, uh, the number one job description is crisis management coordinator. Um, that's changed. And I, I came up with this line three years ago. I'm, I'm going to say if any, if you hear from anybody else, but I, but I, cause I think it's my, my line. I said three years ago, as I saw this change coming with transfers, I said, you are now a roster management supervisor um, because it, it, coaching is important. Recruiting is important, but how you manage your roster is critical and when you just look at any junior college coach, you know, take a junior college coach, like, you know, the, uh, junior college in North Idaho, you know, it, it's the same recruiting for coach few now as it is for those Juco guys, because you're going to lose guys to the NBA if they're one and done, like a Jalen Suggs or a Chet Holmgren, but you can, you can replenish and get old with transfers and older guys. So I don't miss it. I don't miss it. It's one of the reasons I never went back because I didn't want to get back into that grind, but I had to stay in basketball, which is why I'm doing the broadcasting. So if there is one thing that you miss, mm -hmm. what would it be? It's absolutely just the teaching on the court and that relationship with the kids. I, I'm a teacher. If you, you know, and I, I listen to the great job you do in broadcasting as a former player. If you hear me, you could tell the teaching, you know, the, uh, I, I try to humbly try to explain to people what I think is happening in the game or what I saw at practice or how guys can get better. And, uh, you know, the other day I was at a Colorado practice and a kid saved the ball, uh, went out of bounds, ball was still in bounds. And I wasn't sure he knew the rule that he could actually jump back in bounds and, and retrieve his own steal. I missed that stuff. I missed stopping practice and going, hey, here's the rule, you know, or hey, here's how to get open a little easier. Um, so I missed those things. But TV gives me the opportunity, man, to teach it every night and try to do it in a way where. You know, if I have to criticize Tom Izzo or Mark Few on a broadcast, it's so easy for me to say, hey, I wouldn't have done that if I were Coach Few, but he's been in the Final Four and I haven't. You know what I mean? There's ways to say things and be a little critical or disagree without acting like you know it all. So that's what I kind of try to do. Tell people what I'm thinking, but not act like I have every answer. How long did it take you to find your voice as a broadcaster? Because it, it, there's there's a transition of talking too much like a former player like myself yeah. or maybe like a former coach like yourself. It's a great question. I'm sure that you've thought about this like I have. I was lucky as a head coach. And, you know, of course, you had to do this in, as a college and NBA player. I got comfortable in front of a camera and a microphone. And I learned the business. I learned how to be a, a communicator. You know, I love recruiting. I love going into a, I, I went into Brevin Knight's home. You probably played against Brevin. I went into Brevin Knight's home when he was a 5'10", 140 pound uh, rising senior in high school. And no one was recruiting him except Manhattan College. And of course, later in that fall, and I recruited him hard for like six months when I got the job. I was a new coach at Manhattan. And later on, obviously, at the very end of recruiting, Stanford offered him late, and he ended up going to Stanford. It was great. 14 years in the league. The rest is history. But we developed such a great relationship that when I went to his home visit, the door opened up, and there's Brevin and mom and dad. I had a ball under my arm, and I flipped it to him. I said, hey, it's your ball. Just give it back to me in four years. You know? <laughs> and so I always was a communicator when it came to recruiting. 
and, and, it's, and a storyteller, because that's what you have to do. You have to sell yourself and sell Gonzaga, sell Manhattan. And so that transition to broadcasting really was natural for me because I just like to hear myself talk sometimes. Well, Brevin Knight was a teammate of mine for a year in the league with the Clippers. Uh, tremendous competitor, uh, oh. which you have to be if, if you're oh. his size or my size. You recruited him to Manhattan. Obviously, it sounds like Stanford swooped him in. And, and late. honestly, late. Yeah. Late. Uh, honestly yeah. it's the right decision. The Stanford education, I'm not taking anything away from oh, Manhattan. No, listen, I, got, I want to finish that story. It's funny you said that. I never thought he would go because he was such a competitor, and the coach never saw him play. Coach Montgomery never saw Brevin play. It was a last-minute deal. Wow. They got shut out on, like, four point guards. And when Brevin came back from that visit on a Sunday night, I called him, and I said, Brev, he goes, yeah, Coach, what's up? I said, how'd it go? He goes, it was good. So I said, well, let me ask you a question. If you never played there, would you be happy? Now, I didn't realize he played with their guys on the visit and kicked their ass, but – I thought he would say, you know, no, I got to play. So, well, by that time he knew he was going to play. But the funny thing was when he said, yeah, I could be happy. I said, you got to go to Stanford. And I told him that. Well, he's now carved himself out a nice niche in the broadcasting world with uh, the Memphis Grizzlies. So it's funny how things worked out for him as well as for for yourself. For me, yeah. Yeah, you you were at Manhattan, and then you took over St. John's. Yeah. Now, I can imagine being the head coach at St. John's, every high school AAU coach in that New York area, hey, I got a kid for you. You got to look at this kid. You got to offer. How do you sift through that pressure uh, because you got you have to keep, I would imagine, enough New York guys to keep that interest, but you got to take the right guys as well. You're asking a, a, some great questions. Uh, when I was, first of all, I grew up there. Secondly, I was an assistant coach at places like Ohio University, Ohio State, Providence. So I always went back to New York to recruit. And when I got the job at Manhattan College, it was a great fit for me because I replaced Steve Lapis when he went to Villanova. And uh I, they hired Steve as a former Big East assistant, high energy New York guy. So when he left, they kind of were looking for the same kind of guy and they, they thought I would be that guy. So after four fun years at Manhattan, and we went to the postseason every year, had some great big win in, in the tournament against Oklahoma and NCAAs. St. John's, I was not a high, I was not high on their list. It was Majerus, Calipari, whatever. And I wound up getting the job. The great thing about it was I, my, my recruiting ties were already there because of Manhattan. And when you're the coach in Manhattan, you're not a threat to anybody. You know, you're just trying to get kids that can, you know, sneak in under the radar. When I went to St. John's, the two big programs, and you might've played against them in the summertime in AAU, Riverside Church and the Gauchos, they all like me already. So I was able to navigate that. And, uh, I, I recruited a kid that you might have played against about an he was, you know, sometimes he could get a little hot headed, a kid named Ron Artest. <laughs> <laughs> played against him in uh, at Nike All-American camp. And uh, he was one of the best defenders in the NBA for a long time. But I know, he was I know. the only player that picked up 94 feet at an All-American camp. And he did it every single game, every single possession. It was amazing. At six, seven, 240. Yes. At six, seven. And, and you know. So I got Ron to come to St. John's and then he, and that was Riverside church. I signed four. They, they, they were 60 and one, one summer. And the only loss they had was to SoCal with Baron Davis, but they beat Baron Davis's team like five other times. So, but I was comfortable recruiting those kind of kids, you know, and like Ron and I still have a good relationship. Um, the people say, how do you coach him? I said, well, I was crazier than him. 
<laughs> you got when you coach New York kids, you got to be a little crazier. So that worked out well. And another guy, I'm going to his wedding this weekend. Zendin Hamilton. I don't know if you ever teamed with Zendin. Yeah, we were teammates one year in summer league. Great guy. A great guy. And I I used to yell at him all the time because when I got to St. John's from Manhattan, he'd already had two years, and Felipe Lopez was supposed to be a bust. He was a bust, and we resurrected St. John's in my two years and. A few years ago, I said to Zendin at a summer league, he was working with the Clippers. I said, Z, I owe you an apology. And he goes, uh, why? I said, I was too tough on you, man. I was really tough on you. He put his hand up. He said, coach, you're the reason I drive a Range Rover. So <laughs> Saturday night, I'm going to, he's like 41 now, I think. Uh, Saturday night, I'm going to his wedding in New York. So uh, anyway, I, I loved I loved the recruiting in New York. I love navigating all those relationships City kids have that edge. You know, you, you remember when Pargo was at Gonzaga and some of the other guys Coach Fuse brought there. They're competitors. And it's not like you can't be a competitor if you come from Walla Walla, you know, or Vancouver, uh, you know, Washington, as, as you guys were. But there's also something fun about coaching that little offbeat, chip on their shoulder, you know, city guy. Yeah, I love how you talked about kind of reconnecting with Zen and Hamilton and, and going to his wedding. That shows you the yeah. power of sports and the ability to connect people that, um, you know, have similar but maybe different backgrounds. But the similarity is the passion of the game. Yeah, You and I know both know Coach Few very well. Tell yeah. us a little bit about how uh, your initial connections with Coach Few came about and, and how he's grown as a, as a coach. Yeah, he's just a tremendous guy. I mean, uh, he's a dear friend. I, I, you know, I've texted him here recently and uh, because of the, you know, the stuff he's gone through, but he's going to be fine and can't wait to see him in a couple of weeks. And of course, I, I might have told you off air, I'm, I'm going to be doing the Texas Gonzaga game, which I can't wait for. It's going to be a monster game. But, you know, I was we were both young coaches. I had left St. John's. It's funny. I wanted to just tell this story because people will go, why did you leave St. John's? Well, I didn't leave on my own choice. I interviewed at Arizona State my second year, and we had a great run. And uh, the Arizona State AD was a guy I wanted to get to know, Kevin White, who now has had this amazing career. He's just retired from his – after being the AD at Arizona State, Notre Dame, and Duke. And um, he offered me the job, or at least talked to me about the Arizona State job. I turned it down, and five weeks later uh, – I got to be careful because Gonzaga is a great Catholic Jesuit university, but <laughs> the priest at St. John's got mad at me for interviewing. He did. He, he thought it was disloyal, even though it was in my contract, or whatever. And five weeks later, I got fired. Wow. Uh, and, you know, and so I was out of coaching, got into broadcasting. So I had a lot of opportunities the next year uh, because people kind of thought it was a raw deal. I had a lot of choices and I chose the New Mexico job because of the pit. And I thought it would be cool to coach in the pit and do all those things, Dan. And so anyway, we were on a Nike trip in Hawaii and I met coach few for the first time. I think I might've met him on the road, but it was one of those like late afternoons where we're the only two guys left at the pool and everybody else gone in because we're going to have this dinner at the hotel and, you know, and the wives went in and we're just sitting shooting a breeze at the pool. And he goes, Hey, I need a game. And I said, well, we need a game. I said, and he goes, you want to play? And I go, yeah, why not? And I said, but got to make me one off one deal. I mean, I will come there first. Don't worry about that. But we can't play at the kennel if you're going to play us at the pit. <laughs> um, come on. That, you know, and he goes, all right, I'll make you a deal. We'll play at Spokane Arena. You remember this? Oh, yeah. And and and, and uh, so the next year we played at the pit, obviously. You remember that game. 
But we got really lucky because you had, what, broken your wrist or something? I had a broken finger the first time in Spokane, yeah. And we got lucky, man, because we had we played well. Uh, we got we had that big lead early, and then Casey shattered the backboard. And then we hung on. If you remember, Casey missed a layup at the yes. buzzer, which he probably would have never missed. And then the next year, um, it, probably one of the best games I've ever coached. And the reason I'm no longer coaching, by the way, was that game. Because you'll remember the guy, Marlon Palmer, the lefty. Oh, he was tremendous point guard from L.A., yes. And he was, uh, I, I wouldn't say a head case, but a really immature. I did the dumbest thing ever. We lost to you guys in overtime. Ruben Douglas, you remember, he oh, yeah. 9% foul shooter, missed two foul shots at the end of regulation. And uh, crazy technical foul by your guy Hernandez <laughs> by accident. And we wind up losing that game. I was so mad at Marlon. And I was still a young coach. I kicked him off the team. I should have just, because he was very selfish, at, at least in my opinion, in my opinion. Um, and what I should have done, like most coaches, is just coach them to the end of the season and say, hey, turn pro. But we had that monster game with you. And then buddy, and I, I think we, we were like 15 and five when we played you. And it's one of the best games ever played at the pit, by the way. And you were great. Marlon was great. Anyway, um, I, I, got, I left coaching that, that, that year after the NIT. Yeah, That's how no, I got to I, coach for you. you brought some some great memories back telling that story, uh, both about Casey breaking a backboard as well as our overtime win yes. at, at the pit, because that that is a definite memory maker uh, game for me. But I, I didn't know how your and Coach Few's relationship began. And then I didn't realize that uh, your coaching That's how it started. Yeah. yeah, I didn't realize how you got out of coaching shortly thereafter. As you've gone into broadcasting and become one of ESPN's kind of forefront analysts, you've carved a niche uh, at the NBA draft with their international coverage. How did that come about? Because I I played in Europe for two very short stints. I appreciate how the game is played over there, but to understand the depth of the amount of guys and the network that you must have to provide that coverage for ESPN uh, is very difficult. I'm sure for the average fan to understand. Yeah, it was great, Dan. I, I'm a junkie. I'm a, I'm a hoop junkie. I mean, seriously, if I'm j- driving down the street and I see eight guys playing four on four in a playground, I'm going to stop and watch a little bit and see what's going on. So I've always been a hoop junkie. When I was at Manhattan, I had a Spanish player on my team. Tremendous young man. Uh, ended up with a 397 in international finance, you know, um, and, a, and a, just a great human being. Played in the ACB afterwards. And so I, I he really piqued my curiosity, you know, and I I, uh, I actually discovered him at a tournament in Germany when I was an assistant coach at Providence. And when I got the head coaching job at Manhattan, I called over to Spain and had a couple connections I developed. And so we took his team, we took my Manhattan team to Spain before his senior year uh, on a foreign trip. And I just fell in love with international hoop. When I went to ESPN, the guy that hired me said, hey, listen, I don't know if you know anything about international basketball, but if you want to be our international expert, I'll make that. You'll be the guy. At the same time that was happening, one of my former Manhattan, another former Manhattan player had taken a job scouting in the NBA for the Mavericks. And he was responsible with Reebok starting a camp in Treviso, Italy called the Euro camp. So my boss sent me over there and my former player is running it. And Donnie Nelson sees me. He's also, cause he worked for Donnie sees me as I walk into the camp and he goes, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm covering the camp for ESPN. He goes, no, no, you're coaching. And cause I, by this time moved to Dallas. So I knew Donnie yeah. well, he goes, no, no, you're coaching. 
So for the next 12 years, I was a coach at this camp. Serge Ibaka, uh, Bogdanov, the Bogdanovich guys, um, you name them, Goran Dragic, they all came through camp. And I fell in love with the, the international game. I got to know all these kids. And I've done this. I just did my second Olympics for NBC. I love great basketball. And here's the coolest thing about it, because you're a basketball savant in terms of the way you thought the game. Um, when you started playing, there were hard. When you played in the NBA, there were only a handful of guys. We taught the game so well to them 50 years ago. UB Brown, Dr. Jack, Chuck Daly. They're now teaching the game back to us. And you see it in the yeah. league. You see it with Jokic. You see it with Doncic. And it's fun. The basketball globe has shrunk. No, you're exactly right. It has shrunk. And, and I think, you know, I love the fact that the international style of game is is really influencing the U.S. game as well. The spacing, uh, yeah. the multi-skilled, versatile big men, as well as just looking for different advantages that maybe you didn't see in the college or the NBA game 15 years ago. If there was one rule change that you could see in the college game that is already used in Europe, what would it be? But there's a few of them, man. There's a few of them. I love the goaltending one. I like knocking it off the rim. You know, I, I know, uh, and many of my friends now are getting used to that. Um, I love the 24-second clock. I, I Honestly, I just think people, I, I, I've had this discussion with high school coaches. They think the 24-second clock is a bad rule. And I'm like, no, first of all, if you have 24 seconds, you have to develop all of your players, bigs and smalls, to handle the ball because – as you know, even during your, well, especially in the NBA or in Europe, that clock gets down to five. Somebody's got to make a play. Yeah. And so the skill development aspect, even at the high school level, would be higher. And I, I just think that um, it's a great way to teach the game. But I think the big one that we should have in college basketball is four quarters. We're the only sport uh, that doesn't have four quarters anywhere in the world, NBA, G League, FIBA. And I think what four quarters does for guys like us who broadcast is where it's not, once you get to the end of the first quarter, team fouls reset Yeah. to, you know, to, to zero. So that, you know, eight minutes to go in the first half, when you're doing Utah, Washington state, there's not a parade to the foul line, the rest of the half. So I love four quarters, but I also love the 24 second clock. Yeah, I would agree with you on the uh, on the four quarters. The women's college game does it, but the one I really wish they would adopt is the 24-second shot clock. I wish it was consistent, as you said, from high school all the way through, and it, it would definitely put more emphasis on skill development and concept uh, yeah. building by coaches uh, for their players. So uh, I would agree with that. Last, co last question, Coach, before I let you go. Yep. You coach for a number of years. Yeah. You still are coaching the game through your broadcast work. Right. You now have two boys that are getting into coaching at a high level, one at the NBA with Orlando Magic, you mentioned, another uh, on Jay Wright's staff at Villanova. Yeah. How much pride does that bring you? Well, what it does is, Dan, I'm telling you, like, it, what makes me feel good is that I never told them they should get into coaching. But they saw we had a great life. And I'm not talking about making money. I'm talking about dad was happy even after a loss. You know, like, hey, at the pit, I can remember games at the pit when they were like seven and four that waiting for me after. I'm sure it's true, like so many ways, even with your kids now. It was so cool to see them out on the court at the pit after a game waiting for me to get done with the press conferences and stuff. And they saw their dad had a, a great life, really. The coolest thing of all of the whole thing 
uh, that they're both in coaching. Well, first of all, two things. They're different than me. I was high energy, volatile, maybe a little over the top, right? <laughs> and they're calm, cool, collected. Um, you know, James is in the NBA and you know, you're not coaching guys like that. Okay. You're not, you're a servant, you know, guy wants to get shots up at 11 at night. If Dan wants to get shots up, James is your Dan's texting James. Hey, can you meet me at the, at the practice facility? And that's what my guys are. They're servants, but here's the coolest thing of all. We joined a country club this summer here in Colorado Springs, uh, the Broadmoor. It's beautiful. And, and James during the pandemic last year, he and DJ Augustine, they decided to play golf and they stink. <laughs> and they played every day during the pandemic until the thing started up and a number of magic players and coaches. And James has gotten pretty good. He's down to a 19 handicap legit. And after summer league, and this was, I, I said to him, what are you going to do after summer league? He goes, can I come to Colorado Springs? I go, sure. What do you want to do? He goes, can we play golf with the Broadmoor? I go, yeah, <laughs> we played six straight days. He's 29. Five hours a day in the golf cart with your 29-year-old son never, ever happens. And the fact that we had a, this country club membership and he wanted to come play golf with me, he wanted to play the course. He didn't care about playing with me, but that's the coolest thing. And it's fun to have two sons in the same business where we can share all these moments. Matt's won a national title in 18 as a grad assistant. James is with a rebuilding team in Orlando with good young guys. Um, I got a great life, man. I'm blessed. I really am. Well, that's awesome. I, I enjoy listening to your ESPN broadcast. And, uh, you know, just by this conversation we've had today, I hear the passion continuing to grow for the game of basketball, and it's evident. So, Coach, I appreciate the time. And uh, we'll have to do this again sometime once the college season gets going and we get kind of into the, the rhythm of the year. Anytime you need me, man. And also, uh, I'll probably see you in a couple weeks in Spokane. I can't wait. Catch up. Absolutely. Take care. Thanks again for joining, Fran. You got it. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.